Hey, welcome back. We are uh, back here in the podcast, back in the studio. Remember, we have three segments that we're going to do. In the news today, we're going to talk about a trans funeral for the mother of all whores. That's the St. Patrick's Cathedral in New York City. 14-year-old taken from his parents because they would not affirm his new gender identity. Uh, Shocking way of measuring how many Biden illegals there are. You got the Bidenomics, now you got Biden illegals. So I want to talk about that for a minute. Uh, Grocery prices, which are shockingly high. And Trump's tennis shoes, we'll get to that. So we've got in the news, and then we've got in the classroom. We're going to spend some time in U.S. history today talking about the progressive era, late 1800s, early 1900s. And then we'll finish in the book. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, about getting angry. We'll look at that with Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo, who lived between 354 and 430 AD. Uh, A few other uh, things to talk about, just some announcements and some reminders for you. So are you ready to rock and roll? Let's get going. Welcome to the Steve Noble Podcast. Tons of truth, lots of grace, but no sacred cows. Now, let the show begin. All right. Thank you to my good friend, Jeff. All right. A a few announcements, a few reminders. Uh, This weekend, uh, all across America, my friends at the Kingdom Story Company, John and Andy Irwin, uh, have released uh, Ordinary Angels. That's Hilary Swank, Alan Richardson, who you might know from the Jack Reacher series. It's a true story. It's an amazing movie. I did a bunch of screenings of this last year. They were supposed to uh, start it, (laughs) release it in October. And then uh, Taylor Swift came out with her Eras Tour movie. And so they were were releasing on the same weekend. And unfortunately, like we saw at the Super Bowl, there's no competing with Taylor Swift. So they push the opening and so ordinary angels opening this weekend nationwide go see this movie it's incredibly uplifting it's clean it's beautiful it's a true story hillary swank's great and alan richardson from jack reacher i think you'll be surprised at the uh at his acting and the character that he plays there P- powerful story powerful reminder about all uh well all of us how uh, you can be literally like an ordinary angel looking to serve your neighbor uh i've got coming up on march 6th will be uh, a special edition of the steve noble podcast with preston sprinkle Preston Sprinkle, he's the author of this book, um, Exiles, The Church in the Shadow of Empire. Let me just give you a little taste here. Uh, This was uh, near the intro. One of the goals of this book is to show that the dual allegiance God and country view runs counter to how God's people viewed themselves throughout Scripture. The Jews living under Babylonian or Persian rule or Christians living under Roman rule would find our undiluted patriotism quite odd. Instead of a God and country lens, I want us to cultivate an exilic lens, one where we see ourselves as exiles taking up temporary residence in a modern-day Babylon. That modern-day Babylon, whether you want to hear it or not, would be the United States of America. So we'll get to that with Preston Sprinkle. So excited about that. Uh, Noble U School, nobleuschool.com, 8th through 12th grade. Uh, registration is now open. So we're taking registration not only here locally where I'm at in the Raleigh-Durham area, Cary, Chapel Hill, that whole area, but also online across the nation and have people from around the country uh, starting to sign up. So if you have a son or daughter, grandson, granddaughter in the homeschooling world, or even a public school where they're, they're going to public school, getting the red pill, I want to give them the blue pill or vice versa, whichever it is. And give them the truth. So U.S. history, world history, civics, or Christian ethics, you can check that out and register. My classes fill up quickly. So go check that out, nobleuschool.com. All right, in the news. Now, I'm going to switch something here. I'm going to take you, for those of you watching video on YouTube or 
uh, Rumble, you'll watch, uh, I'm going to show you this whole thing. Okay, so we're going to look at a few stories here. This first one is a shocker, a trans funeral for the mother of all whores at St. Patrick's Cathedral. What, you didn't get an invite to that one? So now if you're watching this, <laughs> if you're watching the video, uh, I'm going to show you the picture of this person who they had a funeral for. This was a man. Yes, those are uh, barely covered fake breasts on this guy. Uh, so if, you, if I just showed you the face, you'd be like, oh, something's up there. A lot of plastic surgery come down a little bit. Like those are some big fake breasts. And this is a guy and a, a transgender activist. Okay, the Archdiocese of New York, this is from the Daily Signal, did not immediately respond to a request for comment from the Daily Signal as to why St. Patrick's Cathedral hosted the funeral, an event with no likely precedent in Catholic history, as the New York Times described it. Uh, so what's the event? Like, like who is this for? What, what's going on here? This is all about this transgender activist who went by the name Cecilia Gentili. Cecilia Gentili. I'm just down into the article here a little bit. One of the organizers of the funeral said the St. Patrick's Cathedral was not told that Gentili identified as a transgender woman. Gentili is also revered by those who identify as LGBTQ as a transgender icon and advocate. I kept it under wraps, organizer Cian, uh, Cian, something like that, Doro's show. A man who identifies as a woman told the Times, explaining that St. Patrick's Cathedral is an icon just like her, meaning the guy that they called Cilicia or something like that. The Reverend Frank, uh, Father Edward Doherty led the service. I'll let you hear him here in a second. Telling the funeral attendees, Cecilia died with Christ. I don't know how he came up with that. A live stream of the event depicts one of the funeral organizers identified by time as Oscar Diaz describing uh, Gentili in the following way. This whore, this great whore, St. Cecilia, mother of all whores. The congregation wildly claps and cheers. Many standing. Diaz goes on to advocate for love, equity, and the same rights of dignity. So I'm going to play this part here. If you're watching the video, you can see it. But this is what uh, the father said uh, at one point when he comes out. to, to So they, they got duped. They didn't know. But once the father comes out and he sees this as a transgender, atheistic, anti-Christian, anti-Christ in many ways funeral, why, why did you go through with it? Why didn't you just say, uh, I'm sorry, we didn't know that you guys, this is what was going on here. But instead, he comes out and kind of cracks a joke. Check this out. Well, welcome to St. Patrick's Cathedral. Except on Easter Sunday, we don't really have a crowd that this that is this well turned out, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So funny. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> a total mockery of the church, all this stuff. Not that these people aren't made in the image of God because they, they are. Jesus died for them as much as he died for you and me. And, but, but a total mockery. And then the church comes out, of course, and says, that, you know, we were duped. And uh, thanks so much for those who led us to the church statement. Uh, let us know they share our outrage over the scandalous behavior at a funeral here at St. Patrick's, Patrick's Cathedral earlier this week. Uh, Salvo, the Reverend... Uh, the the very reverend Enrique A. Salvo, pastor of St. Patrick's Cathedral. The cathedral only knew that family and friends were requesting a funeral mass for a Catholic and had no idea our welcome and prayer would be degraded in such a sacrilegious and deceptive way. That such a scandal occurred at America's parish church makes it worse that it took place at Lent was beginning, uh, as Lent was beginning the annual 40-day struggle with the forces of sin and darkness, is a potent reminder of how much we need prayer, reparation, 
repentance, grace, and mercy to which this holy season invites us. As the cardinal, at the cardinal's directive, we have offered an appropriate mass of reparation. Wow. Well, you know how big of you. Why that? Why that one uh, priest went through with it in the first place is beyond me. Uh, but but a reminder here: this is spiritual forces of darkness. Uh, Cecilia or whatever his name was. Uh, I'm I'm highly doubtful that Cecilia was in Christ, even though that's what the uh, priest said. But they they duped the church. They went in there. This is spiritual forces of darkness, and you just have to realize this is the this is the the two realities we live in. Is this is spiritual forces of darkness? These guys lied. They came in there and make a mockery of the church, just like they would if they did a transgender wedding or whatever. And uh, and and this should disgust you. While at the same time. Every single person in that church, Jesus died for. So you see the tension there? You got to walk in as a Christian. Again, not the right, not the left. Uh, but as a Christ follower, you walk in that tension. And that's why I'm, we're going to talk about when we get to in, into the book today, Adam Mark 3, uh, about getting angry. That, that should make you angry. Well, at the same time, you have some level of compassion for these people. That's how deceived they are. And that's how given, they over, given over they are to their sin. The whole thing's sad and disgusting and maddening it's all of that and so shame on the church there they got duped but the guy as soon as he walked out should have said uh yeah no i'm out of here okay the next one a 14 year old taken from his parents uh if you can believe this 14 year old taken from his parents uh this is a, a story out of montana montana governor defends removal of a 14 year old from parents who oppose gender identity i'm reading from the story republican governor uh, governor greg gianfort told the, the national desk monday state officials acted within their legal limitations by removing a child from parents who objected to their transition transitioning gender identity montana child and family services officials took custody of a 14 year old uh, from parents Krista and Todd Kolstad this month, according to Redux, the teenager is reportedly a biological female and recently began to express suicidal thoughts. While being treated at a hospital in August, doctors began using the child's preferred name and pronouns, which, of course, the parents reportedly opposed that, and that becomes the problem. Doctors reportedly later moved the 14-year-old to a specialized residential treatment facility in Wyoming. Despite the parents preferring a facility in Billings, Montana, Krista and Todd claimed they were given no information, of course, about all of this. In September, the 14-year-old was returned to Montana and placed in a group home. According to Redux, after four months, Krista and Todd were reportedly notified that custody was being granted to CFS, Child Services, and the agency would be allowing the child's birth mother in Canada to ultimately assume care. Quote, we were told that letting the child transition and live as a boy was in her therapeutic best interest. It isn't. And because we weren't willing to follow that recommendation, the court gave a C CFS custody of the child for six months. Krista, the mom, told him, told the, uh, the, the news source here. The judge said to us, you need to expect that reunification with your family may not be what you are expecting, meaning it might not happen. Now, the governor comes out and says, hey, when asked to comment on it, he says uh, that children's rights to grow up in a happy, healthy homes with loving families are not always realized. And then he noted the Montana law. Our administration will continue to advance policies that strengthen our families and protect Montana kids like what we have done to promote adoption and to ban permanent invasive life-altering medical procedures on children like puberty blockers, hormonal treatments, and sex reassignment surgeries. So on the one hand, they say here in Montana, you can't do that. But if the parents don't affirm their kid, their son's gender identity because he's got gender dysphoria and mental and emotional illness, then he's not growing up in a loving home and the state has the right to come take him which is disgustingly uh, contrary to the law they just passed. 
But stuff like this is growing. I'm hoping that the transgender madness that we're taking a turn there. But again, even with stuff like this, the little boy needs help. He needs counseling. He doesn't need hormone treatment. He doesn't need a scalpel. He doesn't need the transgender movement coming to his rescue because that'll be his demise. But he needs to be with his parents, not people that will affirm his mental and emotional illness. He needs help, not indulgence. And he's 14. We won't even give the keys to a car to a 14-year-old. You're going to give him the keys to gender uh, sex reassignment surgery at some point? It's insane. But something like that should make you mad while at the same time having a broken heart. Here we go again, right? There's the challenge. Let's keep going. Number of illegals entering U.S. under Biden exceeds border states' entire population. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this to a whole nother level here. Okay, because the point of this article is... The number of people entering the United States illegally at the nation's southern border since President Biden took office now exceeds the population of Arizona. It's way worse than that. The Grand Canyon State is the 14th most populous in the country with just over 7.4 million people. Uh, according to the U.S. Custom and Border Protection, the number of illegal immigrants encountered at the southwest border in fiscal years 2021 through 2024 was 7.3 million. Okay, 7.3 million. However, there have been more than 1.7 million known gotaways at the border since Biden became president, putting the total illegal crossings at close to 8.9 million, far in excess of Arizona's pop, uh, population. Okay, let's go with that number, 8.9. It's probably 8.9 to 9. One border agent recently, I read a story that said he thinks it's more like 12 or 13 million in three years. But let's just go with this conservative number, 8.9. That's 7.3 uh, that they actually know of, and then at least another 1.7 million gotaways. That's their estimate of people that they actually didn't encounter, but just based on the flow, they're assuming that many more came in. So 8.99 million. Okay, now back to the screen. If you're on video and on uh, watching on YouTube or on uh, Rumble, so just go to the Steve Noble podcast page on either place and you can join us by video. All right, I'm showing you a list uh, by state of the populations of states. Okay, so we're at, we're at 8.9 million illegals that have come in. They're, they say they're asylum seekers, but 95 plus percent of them are not. They just say that. That's a lie. And asylum is, is <laughs> that's not why they're here. Okay, now there's a lot of them. We don't know why they're here and it's probably nefarious. We just don't know how many. But here, this is this chart. I'm looking at the chart. This is the states by census and population, okay, uh, most recently. So let's go back to that number, 8.9 million, just to show you how bad it is. It's unsustainable. 8.9 million total in the last three years is bigger than how many states? Well, 8.9 million gets you just above Virginia, and Virginia is the 12th most populous state in the nation. So 8.9 million, that's how many illegals have come in since Biden became the president. That's bigger than the population of every single state in the country, except for the top 12, which is Virginia, New Jersey, Michigan, North Carolina, Georgia, Ohio, Illinois, Pennsylvania, New York, Florida, Texas, and California. California at 38.9 million. Uh, Illinois, for example, 12.5 million. Georgia, 11 million. Michigan, 10 million. New Jersey, 9.2 million. Virginia, 8.7 million. And the amount of illegals are slightly above Virginia. So they would actually, the illegals would come in number uh, 11 right behind New Jersey and then Virginia and then the other, literally the, uh, the other 38 states. Like if you live in uh, Iowa, there's only 3.2 million people in Iowa. Well, Steve, that's a small state. Okay, South Carolina, 5.3 million. Maryland, 6.1 million. Indiana, 6.8 million. Washington, Washington State, 7.8 million. Virginia, 8.7 million illegal immigrants under Biden, state of illegal immigrants under Biden, 8.9 million. 
it would literally be the 12th most populous state in the country. Just to, and should you be mad about that? Absolutely. But back to the challenge. Back to the challenge is all 8.9 million of those people that are made in the image of God. They're still lawbreakers. They still made a decision. Most of them made a, they know they're coming across illegally. They know they break the law. They just don't care. They're in New York. We'll talk about that another time. Now they're talking about giving them up to $10,000 on a, on a prepaid debit card. Uh, that gets loaded up uh, every four weeks. It's insane. Totally insane. And, and I was just talking to one of my classes about it. I, and I was like, yeah, I would militarize the border. I put 100,000 troops on the border. But then it begs the question, what happens when people keep trying to come across? Well, at Eagle Pass, it's basically down to nothing now because they put razor wire up. Because they're not willing to pay the price to cross the razor wire because you're going to get ripped apart. It's going to be bad. And so the incentive to not come in has to be bigger than the incentive to come in. And right now the incentive to come in is you can get away with it. They're never going to take you into court. You're never going to have your asylum thing, your asylum court hearing, because we've got 3 million of those on the books. And you can go to New York City. They'll put you in a hotel. It's kind of lousy living conditions, but they're going to give you some money and a cell phone. And why not? You get more of what you incentivize. So it's only going to get worse, which is another reason why Biden needs to go in Mayorkas. I'm glad they impeached him in the house it's not going anywhere but they need to impeach him you know this one already 30 years uh, it's been 30 years since food ate up this much of our incomes you know that one right it's been 30 years since then this is in the wall street journal it's been 30 years since food ate up this much of your income prices at restaurants and other eateries were up 5.1 percent last month compared with january of 2023 while grocery costs increased 1.2 percent Biden bidenomics man it's just kicking it kicking it right in the butt Woohoo! thank you uh joe Joe, 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 are you, are you there? In 1990, sorry, that was rude. In 1991, U.S. consumers spent 11.4% of their disposable personal income on food. Wow, 11.4% of your budget's on food. We all know that. Bidenomics, this guy can't go soon enough, right? Okay, let me, uh, let me take a risk here of losing a good chunk of you. Okay, I, I have to do this. I have to talk about these. Okay, a couple things here. I'll show it to you on the screen. Uh, Trump sneakers. Do you hear about these? President Trump's official sneaker. Okay, I know this looks like, I'm showing you the website on, on YouTube and on Rumble. I know it, you look at it and go, come on, that, that can't possibly be real. It is real. Trump sneakers. There you see them. They're, they're gold, real blingy, red, white, and blue, kind of little flag thing. On the top of the tongue, it's got T, of course, T on the sides. Basically, just a Trump sneaker. Okay, that's what, they're sold out. Uh, super limited, only a thousand pairs. So they were like 399 bucks. They sold out, of course. Now you can sell them on eBay for 5,000, about 5,000 bucks a piece. And so I, I posted this on Facebook a few days ago and just got blasted. Don't, don't you ever have anything nice to say about President Trump? Yeah, I have all kinds of nice things to say about President Trump. But just because I can say nice things about President Trump doesn't mean I'm not allowed to criticize him. Here's my problem with all this stuff. And let me show you the other thing that happened not that long ago, a few weeks ago, because it's the same company that's working with President Trump that did the other thing, which is the Trump trading cards. I'm showing you that right now. If you're on YouTube or Rumble, you can see the video. All right, the, literally, this is real. Trump digital trading cards, only $99 a piece. And you can see all these crazy pictures in here and these Trump like NFTs, non-fungible trading cards are, the, you know, it's all, you look at it and go, okay. Now here's what I'm running into. 
Some people are like, hey, man, I think it's great. He's a businessman. They're taking all his money, which is disgusting. And, uh, and he has every right to do this. Here's what I think. I think all of this stuff, the Trump trading cards, and then he does a real, if you buy all 100 of them or something for four grand, you get an actual trading card. And, and part of that trading card, they use a piece of his suit in the picture that he was wearing in the picture when he got, uh, when he got uh, booked, right? He was wearing that suit. And so they've cut that up on, into a bunch of little pieces. And if you buy like four grand on these trading cards, then you get the free real trading card with a little piece of his suit and you get invited to some party down at Mar-a-Lago. All right, if, if, if the guy was only going to be a, an ex-president, I'd be like, okay, I think that's tacky, but whatever. But he's not only going to be an ex-president. There's a pretty good chance, which I'm thrilled, relative to Joe Biden, there's a pretty good chance he'll be the next president. I think all of this stuff is beneath the office of the president. And then I, I just get blasted for this stuff on social media because I sit there and go, I said, oh, this has got a whole golden uh, calves, got a whole golden calf vibe to me. I, I, a former president and a potential next president selling what looks to be like gold-plated tennis shoes and having uh, digital playing cards of themselves uh, to me is gross. Sorry. It's gross. It's narcissistic. It's remarkably prideful. And yeah, I, he's Steve. He has a right to make money. He's a businessman. Yeah, I know. But he's not just a businessman anymore. He's an ex-president, potentially another president. I think all of that stuff's beneath the office. I really do. I think he has a responsibility to uphold the dignity of the office. That doesn't mean you can't be tough. doesn't mean he can't have mean tweets. How he does things matters. He's president of the United States. It matters. And I think this is setting a precedent, and so many of my Christian friends seem to be unwilling, unable to offer any kind of criticism ever. As, which is why I always use the golden calf analogy because I'm like, you know you're touching somebody's golden calf when they get ticked off about it. I mean, just spit on it, rub it a little bit, knock it, bump it, and people get nutty. I watch, People just get nutty when I go negative on Trump. And, and that's really disturbing to me. Listen, there's a bunch of things I like about the guy, about his presidency. I, I largely loved his first three years. I thought he was a train wreck in his four, fourth year. I think he's largely to blame for a lot of COVID stuff. I think he handed it over to Birch and Fauci. Fauci. I think he's all about, hey, Operation Warp Speed, because I and I'm judging him because I, because I think he was like, hey, I, I saved 100 million people or whatever. That was all about him. Part of it's about people. I really think he does want to help people, but he definitely wants to help himself too. You don't, you don't think he's that selfish? Of course he is. And so I voted for him twice. I'll vote, him, I'll vote for him again. I would prefer to have Ron DeSantis. I got blasted for that because I put out a picture on Facebook of my, uh, what my primary ballot looks like, and I, I'm marking off Ron DeSantis. Now I'm a traitor. I should be drawn and quartered or something, at least by some. And, and these, a bunch of people that blast me are, I know are Christians. They're my brother or sister in Christ. But I touch that, I touch that calf, man, and they just go nutty. Well, sorry, my allegiance isn't to him or even to this country. And when you, and he's a public figure and he's the next president, potentially this, the next president of the United States. He, he, you hold him to a different standard. He put himself in the game. I'm not attacking him like he's some private citizen. He's not. He doesn't want to be. Let's be honest here. So I have a very interesting relationship with our former president. But I'm never going to be afraid to talk about this stuff. But I'm always amazed by my fellow Christians that seem to just hate me when I do. So Trump sneakers, no thank you. Trump trading cards, no thank you. I think both of them are beneath the office. Okay, there, I said it. All right, so that's in the news. Let's do in the classroom. This week, we're gonna look at uh, US history. I was taught, teaching my students this week about the progressive era. So if you're on, um, 
If you're on uh, Rumble or watching the video, Rumble, YouTube, just go to the Steve Noble podcast page there. Uh, you'll see these things, okay? I'm, I'm showing you uh, what's on here. And I want to take you through this. Progressive era in U.S. history, basically 1890 to 1920, this is a, a, a remarkably important period of U.S. history, the progressive era. It does have something to do with political progressives today. There were some good things that happened here during the progressive era, but largely the thrust was the, the federal government is the answer. I'll show you some things here. Eugenics came out of the progressive era, the taking over of the American educational system by uh essentially atheistic, socialistic thinking people like John Dewey happened during the uh, progressive era. That's, that's really when America took a radical turn. The progressive era then sets up a lot of things about the growth of big government, sets up the 1960s, and you get rid of a, a what, what's called a Western paideia, which is essentially a, a Christian worldview type approach to dealing with uh, education. You're going to teach history. You're going to teach, teach critical thinking, liberal arts. Uh, not anymore. John Dewey was one of the leaders in this movement, okay? So I just want to take you through a few things here that I was telling my students this week. Uh, Progressive Era started. You had uh, President McKinley. He was shot and killed. Then Theodore Roosevelt comes in. You know, he was only tw uh, 42 when he was the 26th president of the, pre of the United States. 42. So basically about half Biden's age and just a little over half of Trump's age. 42, Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt comes in, and here's the problem. He sees uh, the presidency of the United States as a big, giant bully pulpit with all kinds of power. Okay? And he uses it for some good things. He regulated the railroad rates uh, with the Hepburn Act because they were monopolistic, and that's going to screw the little guy in pricing. Uh, and then he was a Republican, but he firmly believed in an expansive federal government. This is where all that nightmare started. Really began with the Civil War and the accumulation of power in the executive branch. We talk about that in my civics class, but in my U.S. history class, I show him the same thing. The accumulation of power in the executive branch, pr primarily in the White House. Under Lincoln, during the Civil War, where you even go so far as to get rid of, the, rid of habeas corpus, so now you can hold people without charging them. They did that, basically suspending the Constitution during the Civil War. But then you get to the progressive era and they take the whole notion of presidential power, executive branch power to a whole new level. So he was a Republican. Teddy Roosevelt was a Republican. Uh, but he used executive orders 1,081 times. 1,081, which is a lot. McKinley only did, before him, McKinley only did 185. Woodrow Wilson goes ballistic. He's the king of the progressive era with 1,800 1800 executive orders. And then, of course, Frank, FDR, Franklin Roosevelt, takes it to a whole other level, 3,522 executive orders as president. But he was the president for 12 years, so that's understandable, and we're in a time of war. But still, it's like Emperor Palpatine from one of the Star Wars prequels. Hey, you know, give me these emergency powers, and when the war is over, I'll set him down. <laughs> sure you will. So that's going on here. Now, under the progressive era, and the progressives, right, they care about all the little guys. They're going to take care of everybody. Uh, they didn't do anything, really, about discrimination and justice. They didn't touch that. Asians in San Francisco, blacks in the South, states passing, started passing Jim Crow laws. Progressives did nothing about that in the 1890s. Separation in all social settings based on skin color, trains, restaurants, hotels, schools, restaurants, uh, even drinking fountains, right? Negro drinking fountain, white drinking fountain. Literary tests and poll taxes were also deployed to suppress the black vote. Get this. In Louisiana, in, in 1896, there were 130,000 black voters. But by 1904, 
right? Eight years later, only 1,300. It goes from 130,000 black voters in Louisiana, who are all Republicans, by the way, in 1896 to only 1,300 voted in 1904. That all happened underneath progressive control of the White House. But they care about the little guy, right? Progressive has also brought you eugenics based on Darwinian evolution. Just got to clean out the gene pool, get rid of the criminals, get rid of the feeble-minded, the disabled, inferior races too, you know, like black people. Just got to get rid of them. Interracial marriages were banned and forced sterilizations instituted in some states. In 1906, John H. Kellogg, a medical doctor, founded the Race Betterment Foundation in Battle Creek, Michigan. The Race Betterment Foundation. Charming. In 1912, Leonard Darwin, yes, son of naturalist Charles Darwin, held the first International Congress of Eugenics in London, by the way, in the late 1930s. Uh, None other than Adolf Hitler himself sent a little contingency over here to meet with the American Eugenics Society, which is what Margaret Sanger was a part of. Sick. Right? That's what was going on. It's part of the progressive era. A couple more things and we'll move on. Of course, the king of the progressive movement was Woodrow Wilson. Get this quote. Check this out. This will tell you exactly where the progressives are coming from. Woodrow Wilson. This is a direct quote. There can be no equality or opportunity if men and women and children be not shielded in their lives from the consequences of great industrial and social processes, which they cannot alter, control, or singly cope with. Basically, uh, regular people have no ability to take care of themselves because there's going to be great industrial and social processes, which they can't even understand, really. And so who's going to come to their aid? Who are you going to call? not Ghostbusters, you're going to call the federal government, you're going to call Woodrow Wilson, and the government's going to take care of you. Who needs God when you have the government? Get rid of God, thank you, Charles Darwin, and then replace him with the government. That's what's going on with progressivism, and that's alive today. The government's the answer to everything, okay? That's a huge thing. Let's finish with this. John Dewey, the philosophy of John Dewey, some progressive educators de-emphasize traditional subjects like history, which is why I teach it, and emphasize vocational training, right, because we want a bunch of workers, We need a bunch of workers. We don't need a bunch of free thinkers, entrepreneurs, people that understand history. That way they can can actually criticize what's going on in the current uh, environment based on what's happened in the past. They can hold you accountable. We don't want that. So that's John Dewey in there. John Dewey was also a leader in the movement known as secular humanism, which denies the existence of the supernatural and affirms the goodness and perfectibility of man. That's going to work real well, right? Dewey's disdain, reading from an article, Dewey's disdain for religion, tradition, and inherited values. All right, let me just back to the camera. You can watch me read this. Dewey's disdain for religion, tradition, and inherited values. He had a disdain for him. Dewey claimed that such beliefs are at least signs of unintelligent thinking and at worst outright oppression by the wealthy and powerful. Philosophically, Dewey argued that because human nature is always in flux, fixed values and beliefs are inimical to progress. To progress, consequently, like that's why you got to get. That's why progressives, communists, Marxists got to get rid of Christianity because it's got a, a fixed moral philosophy. Okay, got to get rid of that. Consequently, he, he declared that schools should no longer be a venue for teaching traditional religious and moral values. This is this is the takeover of the public school system in the late 1800s. Okay, instead, Dewey believed that schools should be places where the child's impulse and whim rule. <laughs> no kidding including uh, call me Sandy now, not Steve, insofar as those impulses and whims are consistent with the values of progressivism. Oh, <laughs> of course. That, and that's where it happened. That's really the epicenter 
of the takeover of the American education system by progressives who are largely Marxist and atheistic in their thinking and philosophy. And that's why, guess what? Uh, I'd said this in my classes, and I, and I know this upset some parents once they heard about it. Uh, I'm not comfortable at all anymore doing the Pledge of Allegiance. Let that sink in. The Pledge of Allegiance. You know it. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America. A socialist uh, pastor who eventually left the faith wrote that in the late 1890s. 1892, I think. He wrote the Pledge of Allegiance. It originally did not have under God in it. We added under God in the 1950s as a pushback against atheistic communism around the world. And that's when they added under God, just convenient political tool to fight communism. And so... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ like I am, should you really be putting your hand on your heart and pledging your allegiance to anything other than God? Shouldn't that? And that's why, that's why I've got this book in my hand again. That's why I read this book, Exiles, The Church and the Shadow of Empire. What does it look like to be a Christian living in a country? I, do I, I love America. I care about America. I'm a patriot. But I'm still in exile. This isn't my home. And like one thing in this book, Exiles, and we're going to talk to, I'm going to interview Preston Sprinkle on March 6th. It'll be a fascinating interview, challenging. Some of you are going to be very uncomfortable with it. Uh, it's not anti-American. It's pro-kingdom. But being pro-kingdom, to a certain extent, is just being sober-minded about your country, even a country as great as America. And in, in, in he talks about a bunch of things in here that I'm like, yep, I'm with you, bro. I'm, an, I'm, a, I'm not an American Christian. I'm a Christian who, by God's grace, was born and raised and still lives in the United States of America. Arguably, I think, the best country in the history of the world, but far from perfect. We got a lot of problems. We did, we do, we will. And so this is just this challenging, like, where's your allegiance? And so I'm like, I, I've been struggling with the Pledge of Allegiance for several years now because I'm like, why am I sitting here putting my hand on my heart and pledging allegiance to the flag or to a country? I can care about my country. I can be like Ezekiel. I can be a watchman on the wall. I can seek the welfare of the city. I can render under Caesar what is Caesar's. I can submit myself. I can submit myself to the governing authorities. But pledging my allegiance to it? As, th think about this. As a Christian, should you really be putting your hand on your heart and pledging your allegiance to anything other than God? And even God would say, hey, Steve, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Don't, don't make, sit there and make promises. But pledging allegiance to the flag? That makes me uncomfortable. And I think it should. So work through that one. Okay, in case you're really angry at me now. <laughs> I'm not really a people-pleasing person, but you know that about me. All right, now here we are back to my favorite uh, version of the Bible, the Ancient Faith Bible, Study Bible. So I've been, I'm reading through the New Testament this, this year. Last year I did the Old Testament. So here we're in the, we're going to finish up with this, and then I'll pray for you, and then we'll be done. Uh, in the book, and we're probably running a little long. How far in are we? I don't even know. Whatever. Uh, 34 minutes. Oh, not bad at all. Okay. I talk so fast. I can hear my dad saying, dang it, Stephen, slow down. I used to tell him, listen faster, dad. <laughs> all right. Mark chapter three, verses one through five. Jesus entered the synagogue. So remember we did in the news, in the classroom. Now we're doing in the book. Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there who had a shriveled hand. In order to accuse him, they were watching him closely to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath. He told the man with the shriveled hand, stand before us. Then he said to them, is it lawful to do good, he being Jesus? Is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. After looking around at them with anger, 
Let me say that again, verse 5. After looking around at them with anger, he was grieved at the hardness of their hearts and told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Bada bing, bada boom. I added that part. Immediately, the Pharisees went out and started plotting with the Herodians against him how they might kill him. All right, here's the study note I wanted to talk to you about, just briefly. Then I'd like to pray for you, and then we'll be done. Okay, this is from uh, Augustine, the Bishop of Hippo. He was uh, born in 354 AD and died in 430 AD. This is from his uh, series called The City of God, book 14. And this is what's in my Ancient Faith Study Bible, a note for this particular passage, John, or sorry, Mark 3, 1 through 5. Augustine writes, If angry emotions which spring from a love of what is good and from holy charity are to be labeled vices, meaning wrong, then all I can say is that some vices should be called virtues. Amen. When such affections as anger are directed to their proper objects, they are following good reasoning, and no one should dare to describe them as maladies or vicious passions. This explains why the Lord himself, who humbled himself to the form of a servant, that's Philippians 2.7, was guilty of no sin whatever as he displayed these emotions openly when appropriate. Surely the one who assumed a true human body and soul would not counterfeit his human affections. Certainly the gospel does not falsely attribute emotions to Christ when it speaks of him being saddened and angered by the lawyers because of their blindness of heart. So that's Augustine the Bishop of Hippo, some written sometime between 354 and 430 AD. Now they translated it into English, obviously. But that's pretty strong, isn't it? Isn't that impressive? And so cool that that was written 1600 years ago, the consistency of the Christian faith. So getting angry, did Jesus get angry? Yes. Do you? Do I? The question is, I'm sure you do. I do, obviously. I do gotten angry on the radio show. I'm, I get angry on the podcast and this is only episode two. Yeah, it happens. The question is, why are you angry? What are you angry about? If you never get angry as a Christian, then your radar's off or turned way down. Does God get angry? Is God emotional? Yes, he is. Does God's emotion control him? It does not. But there's things that God hates. Go read Psalm 5. See if you can find a little, a little ditty in there about God hating sinners, not just the sin. That's a difficult one. But anger, what, there's, a, there's a role for anger in the Christian life. There's a lot of things, injustice, the violation of the moral order and natural law. When you see a 14-year-old's parents not allowed to see him, when you see transgender activists desecrate a, a church, when you see uh, illegal immigrants become essentially the 12th biggest state in the nation, and Joe Biden says it's all under control, and if the Republicans would just give me money, we'll take care of it. Hey, I thought it's under control. That, that stuff makes, you, makes me angry. To see these immigrants like in New York City in, in the hotel there, in the Roosevelt Hotel, crammed in there like rats, makes me angry. And on the other side, I'm like, well, you guys did it to yourselves. You came here. Why did you come here? You came here because we allowed you to come here. We opened the border to you. Everybody's to blame there. Everybody. And that makes me angry. But on the other hand, on the other side of anger, where, do you have any mercy 
Do you have any compassion? Thankfully, praise Jesus. Mercy triumphs over judgment. How true is that for you? How true is that for me? As we go through the news of the day, as we encounter things that Donald Trump does or Joe Biden does or Kamala Harris or whoever, fill in the blank. There's definitely a role for anger. And if you don't get angry at things, there's something wrong with you. If you get angry at everything, there's something wrong with you. But what's motivating your anger? Are you mad at me because I say things about Donald Trump because I think he's a narcissistic, uh, self-aggrandizing man? And he does things that I think are beneath the office of the president? Does that make you angry because I said that? Do you have a biblical case against me? Because if you don't, your anger is misplaced. It's unwarranted. And that's the rub for all of us, right? So thank you, Augustine, Bishop of Hippo, somewhere between 354 and 430 AT, reminding us that the Bible records Jesus gets angry. There's nothing wrong about that. Perfect motivation. That's the difference, big one, between him and us. But yeah, you better get angry. You better get angry. In the news, in the classroom, in the book, episode two here on the Steve Noble podcast. Let me pray for you and then we'll be done. Father God, I thank you for this time to be with my friend. Lord, I pray your blessings upon their life and give them strength in their challenges. Give them wisdom. Give them discernment and insight. Lord, give them a holy boldness. Give them a broken heart for the people around them, for their own sin. Give them a holy anger for the things that anger you. Lord, help my friend to see people the way you do, including themselves. And Lord, I just pray your blessings over them and and just meet them where they're at, Father. I know you know every single thing, every detail going on in their lives, the things that we can celebrate, the things that we mourn with. Well, with you, my friend, mourn with you. And I pray for them, Father. I lift them up to you and pray that you would just wrap them up. Your peace would wrap them up like a blanket. Give them the wisdom and discernment they need today, tomorrow, for the next week. Guide them, Lord. Give them, give them hope, Father. And give them a witness. Give them a testimony. And pray that you would give them the prayer burdens. And Lord, for the loved ones that they're concerned about, or a wayward child, a spouse, a marriage problem, Lord, help, help my friend never to give up laboring in prayer, to be like the persistent widow. Don't, don't, don't give up. Don't ever give up. So, Lord, I just pray your blessings on my friend. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, gang. So good to be with you as always. Until next time, may God bless you. And like my dad always used to say, ever forward. 